0: This morning I'd like to look into the eighth chapter in the book of Acts. This last part of the eighth chapter of the book of Acts deals with two people, a preacher by the name of Philip and a man that he would interact with that's referred to here to us as the eunuch. If you look in Acts eight, nine, and ten, you will find an example of how someone from the three major divisions of the human race We're all blessed to hear the gospel and obey it and be baptized. If you go back to the book of Genesis and the flood, you'll find out that the flood, where Noah and his family came off the ark, and Noah had three sons. He had one the name of Japheth, one the name of Shem, and one the name of Ham. And he instructed, the Lord instructed Noah and his sons to be fruitful and to replenish the earth. And from These three sons of Noah, we have the earth populated as we have today. We find in Acts chapter 8, the eunuch came from Ham. He was a descendant of Ham. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, he was a descendant of Shem. And in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is a descendant of Japheth. So these three chapters, we have three descendants of these three sons of Noah that go back, of course, a long, long time prior to this. This is also uh, some examples, I think, of what Paul had in consideration in the book of Romans in chapter 10, when he said in verse 17, For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, a lot of people take that verse, and they isolate it, and they believe that Paul is saying that this is where you get faith, is when you hear the word of God. But if you study the subject of faith out very clearly, you'll find that's not the case at all. But rather, when he says, faith cometh by hearing, he's talking about a manifestation of the faith that's already in the person who hears the gospel. Now look at uh, several things about the word faith before we go any further. You need to keep this in mind. When you're talking about faith, there's more than one category of faith. There's the faith the Bible talks about. This is mentioned several times in the New Testament. But we'll take a look in the book of Jude, the opening verses, where Jude wrote to those on that occasion and said, It is necessary for me to write these things unto you that you might earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. He's talking about the truth of the Bible. He's talking about that overall body of work of truth found between Genesis and Revelation. That is the faith that's under consideration. And then there's the faith that exists in the hearts of all those who have been born of the Spirit of God. It's referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. If you look in Galatians 5.22, you will find where Paul lists nine uh, different fruits, you might say, that the Spirit can produce. And faith is number seven. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, gentleness, faith. And then... We have temperances in which there is no such law, you know. So you have nine listed there. Faith is number seven. If it's the fruit of the Spirit, you can't produce the faith unless you have the Spirit. It's just like an apple tree produces the apple. You see the apple hanging on the limb. Well, the apple tree produced the apple. If you go to the doctor and you're not feeling well, And uh, you're breaking out in red spots, and you got a fever, and you got body aches and pains. He says, Well, you've got the measles. Now, the fever and the dots and the aches and everything is not what gives you the measles, is it? Isn't that what the measles give you? Are these not the evidences that you're sick? Are these not the evidence that something in your body, this infection, the measles, is producing a fever? It's producing body aches and pains. It is producing the red spots on you. If you went to the doctor and he says, well, you know, let me tell you something now. You got a fever and you got these red spots and body aches and pains. I got a feeling that you might get the measles in a few days. I suggest getting another doctor. You know better than that. You've already got the measles. Do you understand that? Same thing with faith, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance, which there is no law. Faith's number seven. You don't exercise faith to get the Spirit. It's the Spirit inside of you that produces the faith. And that's planted in your heart when you are born of the Spirit of God. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, the first couple of verses. Here the apostle says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, referring back to that 11th chapter, Wherefore, seeing we're compassed about, circled about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in these sin that doth so easily beset us. Looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Who's the author of your faith? Jesus Christ is. That means the beginner. Faith has beginning inside of you. It begins when you're born of the Spirit of God and God is planted His divine nature within your heart and soul. And faith is planted that time which needs to be manifested and will be manifested in your life when you hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and you obey the gospel and it makes changes in your life, you're manifesting that faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now this is clearly illustrated, I think, in the book of Acts in a number of places, but we come here to Acts chapter 9. And um, we're going to kind of go through this this morning, and it's a lot of different principles under consideration in this very familiar story. When I say a very familiar story, it's familiar to those who read the Bible. If you don't read the Bible, it's not familiar. We say it a lot, here's a very familiar text. Yeah, to Bible readers it is, (laughs) to non-Bible readers it's not a familiar text. I know two verses in the Bible that's familiar to everybody who doesn't read the Bible. John 3, 16 and Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, I believe it is. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That's familiar to everybody, whether they ever read the Bible or not. And then there's Matthew chapter 7, where you know, there'll be those who like to take this verse uh, to say, there's no, you have no right to judge their life and judge their actions, judge their behavior. and said, the Lord said, judge ye not, lest ye also be judged. Uh, he's talking about judgment of hypocrisy there. Hypocrisy. The Bible makes it very clear there are a good number of ways in which we are to make judgments about things here in this life. All right. We come here to Acts chapter 9, familiar, chapter, familiar past scriptures to those who read the Bible and study the Bibles. Those who do not, it's not familiar. So we find a man that's not his name not given to us. Uh, He's uh, he's a eunuch. We're told a lot about the man, he's a, a eunuch of great authority under Kondasi, queen of the Ethiopians. And that was kind of a general name like Pharaoh was among the Egyptians who had charge of all her treasure and come to Jerusalem for the worship. Now I would say if he had charge of all her treasure, he had to be an honest, responsible, dependable person. Wouldn't you? Would you give anybody, just anybody charge of your bank account? Would you give just anybody uh, your checkbook and say, you know, just be sure you just buy what you need now if you didn't have confidence in him and feel like that person would be responsible with it and would uh, deal with it, you know, in a responsible way? Would you do that? I don't think so. It'd be somebody you trusted. Here's a man the queen trusted. Here's a man that's responsible. Here's a man that's got authority. Here's a man, uh, an important man in her kingdom right here. He had charge of all her treasure. But in verse 26, it says, The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go down toward the south into the way which goeth from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. Now, this is south of Jerusalem. It is, you know, down in, in, it's about 200 miles away. Let me put it that way. Now, 200 miles in that day is a lot further than 200 miles a day. I just traveled down to Lake City, Florida. I got out just ahead of the snowstorm, by the way. I left on Wednesday. I didn't wait around for Thursday. Uh, I was afraid something might happen. I wouldn't get out of here. So I left on Wednesday, spent the night with David, broke up the trip and got ahead of the storm. And then I came back yesterday afternoon late and got in on the backside of it after it was all gone. Uh, That's pretty smart, I think. But anyway, (laughs) the Lord was good to us, wasn't he? Can you imagine how that much snow me be all gone this quickly? The temperature and the rain and everything just took care of everything for us, didn't it? Oh, the Lord's good to us. A lot of times people don't think about things like that. I sure did. But anyway, he's 200 miles away. I I drove about 550 miles one way and 550 miles back. And I made that a whole lot quicker than the eunuch did traveling 200 miles in his day. So he travels 200 rough miles. Uh, Hot weather he lived in. Uh, He traveled in dusty conditions, harsh conditions to travel 200 miles to come to Jerusalem for a specific purpose, and the purpose he came to Jerusalem was to worship. Now, let's remember that. That's why he left where he was at, why he traveled 200 miles or so, and came to Jerusalem, and he came to worship God. Now, why are you here this morning? Why am I here this morning? Um, I came to worship God. Uh, the Lord's been good to me. The Lord has blessed me. Uh, the Lord has given me a hope in my heart that I belong to him and he belongs to me. The Lord has put the expectation in my heart and when I pass this scene of life, I'm gonna be with him in a place called Heaven. The Lord has given me something to eat every day of my life. The Lord has given me clothes to wear every day of my life. The Lord has given me a house to live in every day of my life. The Lord's given me a bed to lay on every day of my life. The Lord's given me a pillow to put my head on every day of my life. What about you? <laughs> the Lord is good. The Lord is great. The Lord is gracious, right? Uh, You need any other reason to be here this morning? (laughs) When you feel tired and weary and all that, uh, think about what Jesus did. Just consider what Jesus did. So I look forward to coming to the house of God. I look forward to coming to worship God who gave me my natural life, the very breath of life I've got I would not have were it not for God. Uh, He gave me the ability to see and to hear and to smell and to taste and to touch and to act and uh, have strength to do work and, and, and to think, a brain to think with. Uh, I mean, what more could we ask, right? So why are we here this morning? (laughs) Are you here to worship? I I hope you are because that's what God seeks. In John chapter 4, we find where the Lord Jesus Christ had uh, been speaking to the Samaritan woman, and he tells her there, he says, uh, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, the day is coming, when the true worship of God must worship Him or shall worship Him in spirit and in truth. As to two things. That's very, very important. That sets the mindset when we come to the house of God. Are we in the Spirit of God? And are we desirous to know truth, hear truth, understand truth, embrace truth, and apply truth? We must worship Him in spirit and also in truth. That's why we use the Bible, which is the word of truth. Now, and he goes on to say, For God is a spirit and seeketh such to worship Him. Notice that. God, who is a spirit, seeketh such to worship Him, who worship Him in spirit but also in truth. So I'd say truth matters, wouldn't you? If the Lord seeks those to worship Him in truth, I'd say truth matters. And I believe everybody here this morning has the Spirit of God within your heart. We're here in spirit, I believe, and also in truth. The singing sounded like we were spiritual-minded this morning. (laughs) Singing was very beautiful. I really appreciated that and felt blessed in it. So the eunuch has traveled 200 miles, and the way you traveled in that day and age, he didn't go by plane, train, or automobile. Uh, he's in a chariot right here. Can you imagine how long it would take you to travel 200 miles plus in a chariot? I'd tell you how long if I knew, but I don't. (laughs) But it'd take you a long time, I can assure you that. So here's where he's been. And the angel of the Lord spake to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down Jerusalem, the Gaza, which is desert. Now here's a picture of how God works on both ends of the line. Here's a seeker. I want you to understand what kind of man we're talking about. Here's a seeker. He's not your typical Jew. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. He doesn't live in Judea. He doesn't live in Samaria. He doesn't live in Galilee. He lives in Ethiopia. 200 miles away. And yet for somehow this man has traveled to Jerusalem to worship. He's putting forth an effort. He's putting forth a diligent effort to be in that place to worship God. I believe we're getting a picture here of a sincere seeker, aren't you? Now, everybody's not a sincere seeker. A lot of God's people just aren't really seeking understanding, seeking truth like I would love for them to do so. But here's a man that is who's going to be rewarded. This man has been to Jerusalem to worship God. He's not there on a sightseeing trip. He's not there. I went over there in 1999 on a sightseeing trip. <laughs> you know, an educational trip, a sightseeing trip to view the land, see those places and everything. It was a wonderful blessing to do so. Consider it to be the trip of my life. I mean, it, just a trip of my life. But that's not why he went there. He went there to worship. God is to be worshiped. Is that not what the angel said unto the Apostle John? You get toward the end of the book of Revelation, you'll find where he fell down in the feet of the angel. He told him to stand up. He says, worship God. We have a God who created the heaven and the earth. We have a God who is our God. We have a God that we can call upon as our Heavenly Father. And it should be the great delight and joy of every single one of us each week, my friends, to meet here in this place to worship God. We owe him everything. We need to give him our best, our, our adoration, our praise. Uh, everything belongs to God. Let's, let's worship God here. That's what sets apart the church uh, from so many out here in the world, the religious organizations. Uh, we meet every time for the express purpose of worshiping God. So the Lord is going to send him somebody. He arose and went, Behold, a man in Ethiopia of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, not just some of it now, he had charge of all of it, had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, worship's over, he's returning. And sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Now I know where he's reading, As we'll find out a little bit later on, he's reading from the 53rd chapter at the time he was reading the book of Isaiah. It didn't have chapters and verses at that time. So he's reading the book of Isaiah, but we're gonna, he's going to pinpoint exactly where he was reading just a little bit further down right here. After he'd been to worship on the way back, in contrast to so many today, and I have to admit I'm somewhat guilty myself, Where our minds quickly leave the message, our minds quickly leave the surface and goes to other things that's really just vain stuff. We may be talking about sports, maybe talking about politics, maybe talking about this virus, you know, instead of taking some time and discussing the message of the day. I think it's just great and very important when families leave the church. On the way home, uh, talk to your children what the message is about today. And don't let them get by with this. Well, what did Brother Lawrence preach on today? I want to say we preached on the Lord. <laughs> don't let them get by with just that. <laughs> I hope they figured that out. Well, what did he say about the Lord? Let's get let's go a little deeper here. Let's expand it out a little bit. What did he say about the Lord? <laughs> let's discuss this. This have some questions about what Brother Lawrence preached today. How quickly our minds move away from that. And that's not good, brethren. We need to focus on the message. Uh, the message is not going to go very far if we don't do that. So he's in his chariot. He's on the way back. He must have been stirred, I believe, quite, uh, quite well when that worship service in Jerusalem his mind, I don't know, maybe they. Maybe the man that day in the synagogue, if that's where he was at in the synagogue on that particular day, or wherever, had read from Isaiah 53, and now he's he's reading it himself in the chariot on the way back. Now, they didn't have a lot of traffic back in that day like we day, do today, and so I wouldn't recommend uh, going the way home if you're driving to do your Bible reading, okay? But he's in the chariot on his way back from Jerusalem, and he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. That's a glor- glorious chapter, as we'll see, Lord willing, in just a few moments. Then the Spirit said, now the angel has directed him. Now the Spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. Now, I wonder what Philip was thinking about when the angel told him to go down there to begin with. I mean, he's talking about going to a desolate place. He didn't say go into the city and you'll find a whole lot of people there. Maybe you'll find somebody interested in what you got to say. He didn't send him on the multitudes. He's going to send him down there to one person, just one person. It's one thing I like about the book of Acts it, you know, in the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter preached to thousands, didn't he? Preached to thousands there in Acts chapter 2. I find in Acts chapter 10 where Peter's going to preach to a cornetus and a household and his friends, and and near friends, and and kinfolks. I don't know how many all together it was, but a pretty good crowd, no doubt. And then in Acts chapter 16, you're going to find where the apostle Paul is going to preach to Lydia and her household. So we see uh, men preaching the gospel, bringing this message to different sized congregations, so to speak. Here we're going to find where God's going to send a man a pretty long ways down there to preach the gospel to one man. But the man is interested. The man is a seeker. The man is very interested in God's word. So the spirit says to him, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him. I, I like that. He got to preach in a hurry. <laughs> if it's one thing to get a preacher in a hurry, it's that he sees somebody or knows somebody that's really interested in God's word. That'll get him in a hurry. It's nothing he delights in anything more than to be able to try to answer a question that a little child of God's got from the word of God. He'll get in a hurry to do that, will he not? Uh, And so Philip's in a hurry here. He's already been told by the angel where to go. And now the Spirit tells him to join himself to the chariot. And I don't think he had to go down there and look around and figure out which one it was. I'm sure when he saw this chariot, that's about all there was, where he was at. So he joins himself up to the chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, understand this what thou readest. So this man's reading out loud, which was pretty commonplace, by the way, back in that day. He's not just reading silently, he's reading out loud. And as Philip gets near there, he hears him reading out loud. And I'm sure Philip recognized the place when he heard it. Heard him reading out loud from the prophet Isaiah. And he says unto the eunuch, understand this what thou readest. Do you understand what you're reading? You know, I think I told you about this, but uh, when Karen and I went to uh, that uh, yard sale several weeks back and we stopped at this place and there was the box that had those two Bibles in it and the lady said, well, the Bibles are free. And I looked in there and there was one uh, published by Collins, which you can't hardly find anymore. Pretty rare. I already had one preacher trying to buy it off of me. But anyway, he's not going to get it. Anyhow, you know, she said, they're free. And I said, okay, I'll take this one. And there was another woman right there by She said, well, you need to be reading the Bible. (laughs) I didn't know what she was going to say. And the lady said, well, I would, but it's just too hard. I I don't understand it. And maybe I shouldn't have said this, but I did. I said, well, oh, you know, uh, it's not too hard to understand. Uh, Look how it starts off. Just join with me. Uh, Come on now. Uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. God. I had to coax her through it. <laughs> if there's one verse in the Bible, season memorized it's Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Oh, that's a mind uh, uh, you know, blower. I don't understand that. I just don't understand how God created the heaven and the earth. What's hard about that? What's difficult about that? <laughs> God created the heaven and the earth in the beginning. I got that. Now, uh, I got that one. I don't think it takes a, a scientist to get that one, right? I got that one down. Yes, there are some difficulties in the Bible. That's why one reason you come to church, uh, you might hear it explained one day. See, Philip's going to do something that this man needs some help in. He says, understand what thou read. He says, how can I except some man guide me? I need some guidance uh, concerning what I'm reading right here. And the place of the scripture which you read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before a shearer, he, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. That's Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Let's read it from Isaiah. When you read Isaiah, it's almost like reading a, a book out of the New Testament. And especially in chapter 53. But you come to Isaiah 53, and let's look at verses 7 and 8. It's talking about Jesus. See, this entire chapter is talking about Jesus. It starts off about his birth, then it talks about his sufferings, etc. And notice his birth, just for a moment. He should grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor cometh, and we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. That's the picture of the Savior. From a natural perspective, there's no beauty about him. He's like a root out of dry ground without form, without colonists. There was no no beauty about him, nothing to set him apart, nothing to distinguish him uh, like uh, some people are. So it talks about his birth, talks about his early days here, and it talks about his sufferings. And then we come down to verses 7 and 8. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. That's where he's at. He's focusing on those two verses. He said, understandest what thou readest. He says, how can I accept some man guide me? And then he desired Philip and he would come up and sit with him. Get the picture. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. Once again, these two verses here. These two verses are pointing you to to the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the redeeming work of the Savior. And throughout the Bible, we find early on where we find the importance of the shedding of blood for the redeeming of God's children. You go back to the third chapter in the book of Genesis, and you find when Adam had transgressed God's law, and you'll find where his and Eve's eyes were open, they saw that they were naked. Well, they were naked prior to that, but they didn't notice it like he did after the transgression. Their eyes were open. And it says they made fig leaves, sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. That's not going to work, is it? That's not going to be adequate. That's not going to be suitable. You'll find that out in a few minutes. Then God comes walking in the cool of the day. And God addresses the man, He addresses the woman, He addresses the serpent. Won't go through the details of that, I won't get down to verse 21. Then the Bible says that God slew an animal and He covered Adam and Eve with the skins of the animal. What we have here, we have a death, do we not? We have the death of an innocent animal. And the death of that innocent animal was going to be used by God to cover up Adam and Eve adequately. If, I don't know of a clearer picture in the Word of God that shows the distinction between man's efforts and God's grace than this, or man's works and God's grace than this. Here's man's efforts. What's he going to do? He's going to go over and find fig leaves, sew them together, and try to cover himself. How long do you think that lasted? Leaves, my friends, when they're separated from the branch, <laughs> they begin to shrivel up, don't they? They begin to dry up and change colors, shrivel up, and uh, they're just not going to get the job done. And now I'm telling you, man and his human nature and his works in this world will never get the job done. It just cannot be. So God comes on the scene and does for Adam and Eve what Adam and Eve couldn't do for themselves. God is going to cover them with skins. That means the death of an animal. If an innocent animal had to die, blood had to be shed for the skins to cover Adam and to cover Eve to cover their nakedness. Again, I don't know of a clearer picture in God's word to show a distinction, a separation between the works of men and the work of grace, between man's will and God's will, man's work and God's work, than this picture we have right here. In Genesis chapter 22, we find where Abraham takes his son Isaac to a mountain. God's going to show him. He says, take thy son Isaac, thy only son, to a mountain I will show thee. And there are you to offer him on top of that mountain. Oh, what a, what a story this is. You find Abraham and Isaac and the two men there as at the base of the mountain. He tells them to tarry here Why and the lad go yonder and worship. Now, that was what was on Abraham's mind was worship. He considered this act that he was about to perform in obedience to God's command to be an act of worship. And he says, We're coming back. You wait here to I and the lad till we come back. He didn't know how it was going to happen, how it was going to unfold, but he just had faith in God that God, who had promised him that through him and his seed all the nations should be blessed, somehow, some way, he's going to bring Isaac back down that mountain. So they get on that mountain, and he takes Isaac and binds him upon the altar, and he raises his hand back to slay his own son. And then at the eleventh hour, so to speak, there's a voice that rings out from an angel. that says, Abraham, stay thy hand. And he looked behind him, and there was a ram caught by his thorn, uh, horns in the, in the thorns, uh, in, the, uh, in a thorn bush, in the bushes behind him. Here we see where this animal is going to take the place of Isaac. An innocent animal is going to take the place of Isaac. Isaac's is going to be released. The animal's going to be offered. I hope you see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in that when he died on Calvary. You were released, I was released, the elect family of God was released, and an animal took our place, well, in, in type. Of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who took our place there. Blood was shed on that occasion. And you come to the book of Exodus chapter 12, and God is going to deliver his people Israel out of the land of Egypt. And the tenth and final plague was the death of the firstborn. You're going to find where God instructs Moses to take a lamb, a lamb for every household. And he says, if the household be too small, he says, then you take the lamb, I want you to notice the progression of this, and the lamb for the two households combined. It says, then your lamb should be a lamb without spot and without blemish. It went from a lamb to the lamb to your lamb. Uh, that's when it gets real personal, doesn't it? It's your lamb now. It started off a lamb, it became the lamb, which is proper. John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. But that's your Lamb. A, the, your. And that Lamb's to be without spot, without blemish. And that Lamb's to be slain by the whole congregation in the evening. And the blood's put on the side posts and the lintel. There was a lot of, a lot of, I didn't know, 10, how many lambs had to be slain? These were innocent lambs that had to be slain. Death took place. Blood was shed so that the Israelites could be spared. At midnight, God moves through. Where He sees the blood, He passes over. There was not one firstborn in the Egyptians spared, not one firstborn of the Israelites that was slain. God passed over where He saw the blood. The blood is what made the difference. The blood always makes the difference. You come on up to the book of Leviticus, chapter 16 and 17, and you're going to find an entire system of worship is based on the shedding of blood. An entire system of worship. In that 16th chapter, you're going to find where God and instructs Moses to instruct Aaron to go to, a, to go to the tabernacle, later it be the temple, on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the most important day in, in, Jew, in the Jewish in the lives of the Jewish people. The Day of Atonement took place one day of the year, took place on the tenth day of the seventh month. You couldn't do it on the ninth day of the seventh month, eleventh day of the seventh month. had done on the tenth day of the seventh month. And you say, Brother Lawrence, what makes, what makes the difference? I'm going to tell you what makes the difference. Let's just back up uh, to the tenth chapter. Aaron's got two sons. Those two sons offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded not. You know what happened to those two sons? Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Fire came down and consumed from heaven and consumed them. At this time here, Aaron in the priesthood is taking God seriously. He tells Aaron what to get. Aaron is to get a ram for himself, to offer himself and for his family. He's to get two ram, uh, two, two goats rather, and a ram to make an offering uh, for the people. And there's going to have to be an offering for the tabernacle itself. Now that kind of overlooked that for a while. Uh, But the reason the tabernacle has to be cleansed is because the people had become unclean in their transgressions and therefore they had defiled the tabernacle. It had to be cleansed. The high priest had to be in the right place at the right time, dressed in the right way, lest he die. You'll find that expression used oftentimes, that he die not, that he die not. You know what that means? That means if you don't do it God's way, by divine appointment and divine specification, you're going to die. It wasn't a matter of preference. God didn't give leeway to him. and say, well, you can do it any way you want to. And he said, no, this is the way you do it. This is the way you do it. So we find the priest had to be in the right place at the right time, the right day, and he had to know what the right order was. And the very first thing that Aaron did, and remember, if you go back and look at Exodus chapter 28, you'll find where God had designed some glorious garments for Aaron. You know, he's going to have a miter. He's going to have a, a breastplate. Uh, he's going to have uh, clothing. It's very, very glorious. He's going to have onyx stones on his shoulders. He's going to have a breastplate with 12 precious stones uh, covering the breastplate, et cetera, to represent the nation of Israel. He's got glorious garments. But when he goes in to make an offer himself, he's lay those glorious garments aside. And I want to remind you of something. of The Lord Jesus Christ who laid something aside and came in sort of, what did he lay aside? He laid aside his glory. That's what he prays the Father to give back to him in John chapter 17. He laid aside his glory. He's to lay aside those garments. He's then to wash, laying aside his garments in a pitch of his humiliation. He's to wash. He's then to make a, uh, he is to slay the, the, the ram. And then he is to take some, uh, some coal uh, off, uh, off the altar there and he's going to take some um, oil, and there the coal and the oil is going to set a cloud that's going to cover the mercy seat. And he's going to go in there and he's going to take that blood of that offering. And he's going to sprinkle on the mercy seat eastward seven times. Seven in, in the Bible, of course, you know, is a number of completion, number of perfection. And that's why Peter uses that word, I believe, over here in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he says, uh, you know, Peter uh, to the stranger scattered at Pontus, Galatia. Cappadocia, Bithynia, uh, elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit, unto unbe- obedience and sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. Notice why he said unto the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He's writing to Jewish people who've been scattered. They understood what the word sprinkle meant. He didn't go in there and pour the blood on the altar because the Bible doesn't teach a general atonement. He didn't accidentally spill the blood on the altar. We don't believe in accidental salvation. But he took that blood and he sprinkled that blood carefully seven times on that altar. And that, would cleanse, that was to cleanse him and his family from their sins. They had to be done first. Now, we're talking about not only humiliation, we're talking about sanctification. He then was to take two goats and a, and a ram. And those two goats he was to cast a lot for. You can go through this. I'm not going to every single detail. It's Leviticus chapter 16. And you'll find the word atonement there is used 16 times. The word blood, I think nine times. And you're going to find where he took those two goats and he cast lots. He's going to separate the two goats. One is going to die and one's going to go free. He's going to take the goat that... uh, the one that goes free, by the way, is called the scapegoat, which is short for the escape goat. Remember the scapegoat. And the one, the other one, as he casts lots for these two, he's going to take his hands and put them upon the head of that goat. He's going to confess all the sins, all the transgressions, all the iniquities upon the head of that goat. And that goat's going to be slain. And the blood of that goat's going to go in there and it's going to sprinkle again the, the uh, mercy seat. The mercy seat was God's seat. The mercy seat covered the Ark of the Covenant. They had the golden pot of manna and the law and Aaron's rod that budded. And the cherubims on each side as they stretched forth their wings to touch one another uh, across that mercy seat. This was God's seat. The high priest had no seat. The reason he had no seat was because his work would never be accomplished. His work would never be finished. It would never be done. It was in a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. The scapegoat then was led by a man into the wilderness out of sight, never to be seen or return again. That's a picture of the sins and iniquities of the Israelites. God put them away, symbolically speaking, not legally speaking. That wouldn't happen to Christ died for them on the cross. But symbolically speaking, those sins were put away into the land of forgetfulness, never to be seen again, never to be heard of again, and the man who took, him, took that goat out there when he returned, he had to change his clothes, he had to wash before he could go back into the service. What did Jesus Christ do for us? The Son of God, my friends, had all the iniquities laid upon him, as Isaiah 53 tells us. For God had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine all the sin and all the iniquity and all the transgressions of all the elect family of God out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on the face of this earth are laid upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ goes to Calvary bearing the sins and iniquities and the transgressions of all of God's family and all of God's children. But in that case there, my friends, the sins of God's family were put away forever permanently. You know how many times the high priest had to do what I just told you, once every single year. And then the year started over. It was a new year. On the first day of that month, the trumpets was blown signifying a new year, a new start. But it took the offering of the priest for himself and for the people and then for the tabernacle to set the record straight so to speak. But guess what happened in 365 days? They was right back in the same condition they were the 365 days before that. So the high priest has to go forth again on the day of atonement, do the same thing over and over and over and over again. When the high priest did that, he came back in, took off the clothes of the ordinary priest, put back on his glorious clothes. When the Lord Jesus Christ made an atonement for our sins, what did he do? He spent 40 more days here on this earth and then he ascended right into glory and put his glory back on, my friends, and set down the right hand of the majesty on high. I like uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16, the apostle tells Timothy without controversy, grace the mystery of godliness, God manifests in the flesh, justified in the spirit, preached on among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received back up into glory. The Lord made a cycle for 33 years. He left heaven, came down here, spent 33 years, got the work done of the Heavenly Father, went back to heaven, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. See, he had a seat. He went back and took his seat. He sat down. The high priest didn't have a chair, didn't have a seat. His work was never over. His neck was never finished from the standpoint of accomplishing anything. It never rolled sin back from one year to the other. It didn't do that. It just reminded everybody they were sinners and had to have their sins cleansed on a regular basis. Aren't you glad the Lord's not coming back to do it again? (laughs) Wouldn't that be sad? (laughs) Why would he come back and do it again if he didn't get done the first time? I wouldn't have any confidence he'd get done the second time. But I'm telling you, he came one time, the only time he needed to come, and he got the work done. I I, I love the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said it is finished. I don't remember a number of years ago. They were having a Bible study there in Plant City, Florida, where one of our members, Brother Julian Cunningham, where he attended every Wednesday morning. And it was a mixture of people there, a mixture of beliefs there. Trust me. <laughs> he said, Brother Ronald says, can you come next Wednesday and speak to us? I said, well, I'd be glad to. What you want me to speak on? He said, we're going through John. It'll be John 19.30. I said, you have to be kidding me. You want me to come and speak on John 19.30? How fast can I get there? That's why the Lord said it is finished. I couldn't believe my, my blessing be able to get there and talk to that group of people about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ if they gave me the option to speak on something. That's what I would have chosen myself. I was able to go there and speak in about 45 minutes. Those folks heard one time, at least in their life, the truth about the finished work of Jesus Christ. I tell you, the Lord is... Isn't that amazing how many verses in the Bible... And and that's the one I got to speak on that day, on that occasion. And by the way, I got invited back. (laughs) I had the the opportunity to speak numerous times to that group of people. They seemed to like me for some reason. (laughs) They just sat there and listened to me for about 45 minutes and said, can you come back next week? (sighs) The finished work of the Savior. This is what the eunuch is reading about. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He says, understands what thou he says? How can I accept some man guide me? He says, come on up to this chair and tell me more about it. <laughs> and beginning the same scripture, he preached Christ unto him. See, I don't have to guess about Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, who it represents. The Bible here tells me he took the same scripture and preached Jesus Christ unto the eunuch. Now, after he got through preaching to him, we find where the they came by and there somehow or another. They found some water out there in the desert. He says, "Here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized?" He said, "Thou believest all thine heart. Thou mayest." He said, "I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God." What a profession of faith! What a profession, brother. If you can believe from your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I'm telling you, the reason you can believe that is because He dwells in your heart, His Spirit's in your breast, He's in your soul, and that is speaking, yes, relating. You can say Jesus Christ is God's beloved Son, and I believe Him to be the Christ. There's no greater evidence you'll have in your lifetime, brother. If you can say that from your heart, you can only say it because Christ dwells in you and you have a vital relationship with the Son of God. Think about it just for a moment. The relationship you've got with Jesus Christ is a vital one. It's, it, you, you are you're united with Jesus. <laughs> you have union with Jesus, my friends. How much glorious can it be than that? You and the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to him. He belongs to you. It's like I preached a couple Sundays ago when Simeon held the Lord Jesus Christ in his arms. I'm telling you, while he held Jesus in his arms, Jesus was holding him in the covenant of grace that was established before time ever began. I'm going to tell you here this morning before the foundation of the world, God chose you, loved you, named you, gave you to his son in a covenant relationship and you're bound in that covenant and you cannot be lost in the hands of Christ. And that's what he's reading from here in Isaiah 53. I don't know what all Philip preached to him about, but I know he had to preach a little about baptism to him. What doth hinder me from being baptized? You know what the preacher today has to look out and say, what's hindering him from being baptized? What's hindering her from being baptized? It shouldn't be that way. Y'all should be coming to me. And say, what does it mean for me to be baptized? And I can say, if you believe from all your heart, you may. And you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know what's going to happen next Sunday? We're going to be right in there, and we're going to have a baptism. That's what it's all about. This is how the gospel operates, how the gospel works. But we see this unit here was a sincere seeker of the truth. He wanted to know more about it. He went to worship. On the way back, he's reading from Isaiah 53. He wants some understanding. He wants the man to help him, uh, guide him through this. That's one of the blessings of the gospel preacher, brother, is to be a guide. You know, I used to think it'd be, uh, I'd be uh, interested in being a guide, uh, you know, uh, out in a um, national park or something. It'd be a joy to be able to take people and show them the beauty of God and point out this and point out that. But God gave me a job of taking 66 national parks, my friends, called the Bible. 66 books. And he said, I want you to guide God's people through those books. I want you to guide them uh, through the offering of Abraham's son Isaac. I want you to guide them in Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. I want you to guide them through Daniel's experience in the lion's den. I want you to guide them in Hebrews, uh, in the fire furnace. I want you to guide them through the life of Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his coming back one day. I want you to guide them through it. And I'm just moaning happy to do so. <laughs> I'll I, I take the job of being this guide over the other guides. How can I accept some man guide me? Oh, what a delight it is to try to help God's people work their way through some of these difficulties and see the light, my friends, of understanding of. come on in their minds and in their hearts to see them grasp and embrace it. Say, oh, now I see it. I see it now. This man says, is he, "Is he talking about himself or somebody else?" And when Philip got through preaching to him, he knew who he was talking about. He wasn't ta- Isaiah. Wasn't talking about Isaiah. Isaiah was talking about Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. And you know what happened here? Faith cometh to hearing. This man's faith just came out, my friends. It just become manifested when he heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed from that Old Testament chapter of Isaiah chapter 53. What a chapter it is. It details our Lord's life uh, uh, just from the time he's born to the time of his death and his resurrection, his ascension back into glory. See, you know, the word gospel literally means good news and glad tidings, right? Now, if something to be good news and glad tidings, it has to be about something, right? Right? If you see somebody happy and smiling one thing and another and you say, what's, what's going on in her life? Somebody said, well, she just got some good news. Her husband's coming home from the army. And you see a man over here and he's happy and he's beaming and he's smiling. And you what, say, what's, what's this man so happy about? He just got some good news. What is it? Well, his wife is coming home from the hospital. Here in the house of God, what's the good news and glad tidings about? You've been saved by God's sovereign grace from a burning eternal hell that you are worthy of by your nature. You've been saved from that to a home in heaven, brother, where there be no sad farewells and no sickness and no uh, sorrow, no pain, no crying, no tears being shed. That's what you've been saved from and saved to. If that's not good news and glad tidings, I just don't have anything to give you. But it is, isn't it? Isn't it, Brother John? <laughs> Yes, indeed it is. Let's sing a hymn, Brother Junior.